a good tree. Trees are beautiful objects. If we had never seen this part of the creation, we should be filled with admiration at the sight. A stately oak or cedar is really a majestic object. It stands firmly by its own strength. It raises its head towards the heavens and spreads out its arm on every side. And when verdant affords a canopy and grateful shade to the weary traveler and a secure habitation for the birds of the air. Trees are the handsomest ornaments of gardens and pleasure grounds. It in itself without trees would have been shorn of its glory. But a tree laden with nutritious fruit is an object still more beautiful and interesting than the trees of the forest. What spectacle is suited to give more pleasure to the contemplative mind than a tree bending under the weight of precious fruit? Between natural and spiritual objects, there is a striking analogy. Of this, the sacred writers often avail themselves to give a lively representation of important truths. The discourses of our Lord are enriched and adorned by the employment of striking emblems. His figures are almost all derived from natural objects. Among fruit trees, the vine is often mentioned in the scriptures, because everywhere to be seen, and when loaded with fine clusters like those of Eskel, the sight is most pleasing. To represent the vital union of believers to himself, our Lord employs the union of the branches to the vine. He is the vine, they are the branches. And the effect of this union is fruitfulness. As a branch severed from the vine cannot bear fruit, neither can believers without Christ. And the cogent motive to induce them to bear much fruit is that their Father in heaven may be glorified. Make the tree good and his fruit good, by their fruit ye shall know them. No man by merely looking at a tree can tell whether it will bear fruit or whether the fruit will be good or bad. When we see persons making a good profession in the church, we cannot tell whether their religion is genuine or spurious until we have an opportunity of seeing the fruits. When John the Baptist called men to repentance, he required them to bring forth fruits meet for repentance. A good life is the best evidence of sincerity in religion. How beautiful is a consistent Christian character. Such a one does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with his God. To his prayers he joins alms, and he abounds in every good work. As he makes his way through the sinful world, his bright example sheds a light on all around, and others seeing his good works are led to glorify his Father in heaven. He makes no ostentatious display of his religion, and yet his good deeds cannot be hid. They are like the ointment which betrayeth itself. He is not ashamed of Christ in his gospel, but glories in the cross, and esteems all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. As the true Christian advances in years, his fruits become more mellow and mature, and he goes on to bring forth fruit even in old age. And finally, like a fruit fully ripe, he drops into the grave, but his works follow him, and he is blessed in death, as a voice from heaven declared, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. The following extract is taken from Baxter's life by Archibald Alexander. The godly man is one that being formerly in a state of sin and misery, both strange and backward to God and heaven and a holy life, and prone to earthly fleshly pleasures, is now by the powerful work of the word and spirit of God, converted to unfeigned faith and repentance, 
brokenhearted for his former sin and misery, flying to Christ as the only hope and physician of his soul, and so is made a new creature, having his heart set upon God in everlasting life, and contemning all the pleasures of the flesh and the things of this world, in comparison of his hopes of glory, hating all no sin, and not willfully living in any, and loving the highest degree of holiness, and willing to use the means that God has appointed to destroy the remnants of sin and bring him nearer to perfection. This is a truly godly man. And he who is not such is ungodly. He that yet remaineth in his natural, depraved state, and is unacquainted with this great and holy change, that hath any sin that he had rather keep than leave, and any that he willfully liveth in, and willfully neglecteth known duties, as one that had rather to be free from them than perform them, and had rather live a fleshly than a spiritual and holy life, and is more in love with the creature than with God, with his life on earth in flesh and sin, than a life with God and the saints in perfect holiness, this man is undoubtedly a wicked and ungodly man, how civilly or religiously soever he seemed to live in the world. End quote. Looking unto Jesus by Alexander. Number one, a look of inquiry. Who is this Jesus? I see that he is a man, for I behold him a babe in Bethlehem. I see him clothed with a body like other men, and growing in wisdom and stature. He has flesh and bones and eats and drinks and sleeps. Yes, I see his body wounded and bleeding, lacerated with a scourge, crowned with thorns, nailed to the cross. See, he bows his head and dies. But is he no more than man? In his child do we not see rays of divinity encircling his sacred head and indicating that in union with this child is the mighty God? Divine glory beams forth from his face. This is the only begotten Son of God, God manifest in the flesh, possessed of the power and knowledge of the Most High. I gaze upon this mystery. Angels can do no more. I am lost in wonder. So are they. This union of the infinite and finite I cannot comprehend, but I can adore the incarnate God. But my anxious spirit still inquires farther. Why such condescension, such humiliation, such unparalleled sufferings? I learned that all this was to qualify him to be mediator between a just God and the sinner. Being a day's man, he must lay his hand on both, and therefore he must partake of the nature of both. But my inquiry farther is, what work as mediator does he perform? What offices does he execute? The ancient prophets from Moses downwards have foretold him as a prophet, a priest, a king. Such offices the sinner needs. He is ignorant and must have a divine teacher. He is guilty and condemned and needs a savior, a substitute, a great high priest to offer an atoning sacrifice sufficiently to satisfy divine justice. It was this which required his incarnation and his accursed death on the cross. And the redeemed sinner needs a king to deliver him from the power of his enemies and bring him to glory. Number two, the look of inquiry leads the soul to the look of confidence. 
the soul burdened with its guilt and with the fearful expectation of coming wrath, finds no rest nor peace until it gets a glimpse of the cross, beholding the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. It is assured of pardon and salvation. Nothing is wanting to its peace. Justice is satisfied. The law is fulfilled. Precept and penalty are satisfied. God is reconciled. And conscience can demand no more. There is peace and joy in believing. Number three, a look of dependence. The poor beggar looks to his benefactor for relief and help because he is benevolent and especially because he has promised him all needed supplies. The believing soul, sensible of its own weakness, looks to Jesus for all needed help and strength. It relies simply on his word of promise, knowing that what he has said he will most certainly perform. Number four, looking unto Jesus. This is also a longing look, a look of intense desire after conformity to his glorious and perfect character. As a child looks at the copy plate when he is learning to write, so the Christian looks unto Christ as his perfect model. It is a look of imitation, copying his fair example. His language is, Be holy, for I am holy. Number five, it is a look of hope and joyful expectation. Christ is absent from our sight, but we have the promise that he will come again. Saints are looking for his second appearance. This often fills their thoughts. They love his appearing, looking for and hasten to the coming of the day of God. This is the look of constant watchfulness, that they may be found of him with their loins girded and their lamps lighted. All Christians should be in the attitude of watchers, for they know not the day nor the hour when their Lord cometh. The following dialogue is called the Culpeter and Cottager. A Culpeter is a peddler of goods. In this case, this person sells books for the American Tract Society. Culpeter. Well, friends, I am glad to meet so many of you together as I have some choice books. Shall I have the pleasure of showing them to you? Cottager, you need not trouble yourself to unpack your books, as we have other use for our money than to buy such things as we can well do without. Culpeter, I've read in a very old and very good book that for the soul to be without knowledge is not good. If we labor so hard to get bread to support the body... We ought not to grudge some little expense to feed the mind, which is our better part. Cottager, I never had any learning, and yet I have got along as well as my neighbors who can read. And more than that, I think that learning makes some people do things which they never could do if they had never learned to read and write. There is Billy Hens, who was reckoned the best scholar in all these parts, and now he is in the state prison for forgery, and his poor wife and children are near starvation. Culperter, you ought to consider that a good thing may be abused. It would never do to throw away everything which has by some been put to a bad use. It is true, Billy Hens never could have committed the crime for which he is suffering in prison if he had not been able to write, but neither could he have committed the crime if he had been destitute of eyes or hands. Would you say, then, that it would be better if men were without eyes and hands? Cottager. 
Well, I agree that learning is needful for some persons, but I cannot see that it would be of any service to me or my children. We are poor people and must make our living by hard labor, and we have no time to spend in reading books. If we knew how to read, which no one in the family does, except my wife, and her learning is of no use to her, for the good woman has not the leaf of a book to read ever since the children tore up her testament. Culpeter, I'm glad to find that you have one reader in your house, and I hope that your wife will not be suffered to be without a book to read after this day. Here is a cheap Bible, and here is a New Testament with fine large print. Come, gratify your wife with a present this morning. Cottager, well, I believe I may as well take one, but do both these books contain the same reading? Culperder, the Bible contains all that is in the New Testament word for word, and much more which every man ought to know. It contains an account of the creation of the world and of man, and an account of his sin and fall by which death came into the world in all our woes, and many other interesting histories. Cottager, I think then I will take the Bible, for though I cannot read myself, I have a cousin who often spends Sunday at my house, who is a very good reader. He often brings a book or a newspaper in his pocket, and my boys are fond of listening to him. Culperder. And do you intend to bring up your boys without schooling? I hope not, if you deprive them of this advantage. I do not know how you will be able to answer for it. Learning is more valuable than all riches, for a man's property often, as we say, makes to itself wings, but whatever knowledge anyone acquires, nobody can deprive him of it. A while ago you said that poor laborers had no time for reading, but they all have one day in the week which ought not to be spent at work or in any amusement, nor in idleness, but in the service of our Creator. For when He had made man, He gave him only six days for his work, and set apart the seventh for Himself. You know the commandments, I presume, which God gave for the regulation of our conduct. Cottager, I told you that I had no learning. I know what is right and what wrong. I see that we ought not to murder, rob, or steal, nor do anything to hurt our fellow creature, but I never saw there was any harm in working on Sunday. Yet as people say this is wrong, we commonly spend a day in hunting or fishing or in visiting our neighbors. Culperder, if our Creator has set apart one day of the week for His own worship and service, we ought certainly to obey His commandments. Cottager, but I should like to know how any man can be sure that he ever made such a law. Dr. Hilder says we may do what we please on Sunday, and the better the day, the better the deed. And as for our religion, he says it is all priestcraft or kingcraft, brought in to keep ignorant people in subjection and to draw money out of their pockets. Culpeter, I am truly sorry that you have among you men who utter such irreligious sentiments and unsettle the minds of ignorant people. But this shows how necessary it is that every man should be able to read the Bible that he may learn from the book of God what he requires of man. You cannot deny that the Almighty ought to be obeyed, and if he is forbidding working and sporting on the Sabbath, these things ought not to be done. Our own conscience tells us that whatever God commands should be obeyed, and nothing is more reasonable than that a certain portion of our time should be devoted to reading the word of God and to his worship both in public and private. What if we received our very being from God with all our faculties, together with food and raiment and light and air and other innumerable blessings, and shall we be so ungrateful as to refuse to acknowledge the goodness of God in these things?
Shall we refuse to spend one-seventh part of our time in His service and in praising and worshiping His holy name? Besides, we are all sinners. We cannot deny it. We have done many things which we ought not to have done and have left undone many things which we ought to have done. Now, it is all important that we understand in what way we may hope for the pardon of our sins. Permit me, friend, to ask you on what ground you look for forgiveness. Cottager. Why, sir, you seem to take me for a very bad man. I believe that I can appeal to all who know me that I am not worse than most of my neighbors. I defy my worst enemy to charge me with any dishonesty. I shall fare as well as others, and that's enough. Culperter. Pardon me, friend, that is not enough. If your neighbors were all sick with a mortal disease, such as the plague of cholera, would it satisfy you to think you were in no worse condition than others, and especially if there was found out a method of cure which you might use? You make entirely too light of this manner. It is the most important subject in the world, and this shows how necessary it is that men should become acquainted with what God has said in this holy word, for there we find the only method of obtaining pardon, and without pardon there can be no salvation for a sinner. He has nothing before him but fiery indignation. Old as you are, it would be well worth your while to learn to read. Lately one of our culpriters met with a man in West Virginia who could not read, and he gave him a tract entitled The Dairyman's Daughter, and he read a part of it to him, and the man would not rest until he had heard the whole, and immediately applied himself to learn to read. And when after some months the culprit came that way, this poor man cordially embraced him and thanked him for the tract which he had given him, and said that but for that he never should have learned to read, and better than all, he said that by means of that tract he hoped he had found peace with God. Cottager, I feel that I am too old to attempt anything of this sort, but I begin to feel some concern about my boys who are growing up without learning. But what can I do? We have no schools near us. Culperter. I know that families living in this sparsely settled region are badly off for schools, but I will tell you of a plan that some benevolent parents have formed for the benefit of such destitute parts of the country. It is to send a teacher to instruct the children for a few hours for two or three days in the week, and then to pass on to another settlement similarly situated. Is there any house here where the children could meet, and any place where the teacher could board and lodge while in the neighborhood? Cottager. Widow Oakland has the largest house of any among us, and she has a small family, only a son and daughter, neither of whom have been to school. And I think it probable that she would receive the teacher as a boarder and could thus pay for the schooling of her children. Culpeter. Very well. No more need be said at present. I will consult their friends and see what can be done. But here are several of your neighbors. Shall I not have the pleasure of selling them some of my books? Come, old gentleman. I guess you can read. Look at these excellent works and select such as you like. Old man, I've heard what you just now said in praise of the Bible, and I like your sentiments very well. I've never been without that blessed book in my house since I was a housekeeper, and I don't care if I never have another book, for I think if we pay attention to that, it will guide us in the right way, and if we do not listen to the word of God, we shall not be likely to attend to the words of man. Culpeter. I agree with you that the Bible does contain all that is necessary for faith and practice, and if we diligently follow its directions, we shall be guided in the way in which we ought to go. But I think you a little misapprehend our object in circulating the writings of good men. 
It is not to teach anything different from what we read in the Bible. It is to explain and to enforce the truth there inculcated. To the Bible, we always appeal for the truth of everything taught in our books. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to these, it is because there is no light in them. For want of such helps, many persons never come to a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches. Even ministers who make the Bible their constant study need commentaries which explain the sacred text, and much more do common people need some helps of this kind. And they need line upon line to stir them up to the diligent performance of their known duties. As you have had the Bible in your house for many years, and I suppose have read it often, permit me to ask you, what, what in your opinion is the method of salvation which it teaches? Old man. Why, sir, I would have you to know that I am not the ignoramus you take me to be. The Bible tells us that the way to be saved is to keep the commandments. It says, do this and live. Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Culperter, I see that you are somewhat acquainted with the Bible and have learnt correctly what is required of us by our Maker, but I wish to know whether you have so kept the commandments that you can depend on your own obedience for acceptance with a holy God. As for myself, if I had no other dependence but my own obedience, I should entertain no hope of salvation. I should be in black despair. And if I read the Scriptures right, by the deeds of the law no flesh shall be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. If men could be saved by their own obedience, then I do not see why the Son of God came into the world, or why it was necessary for Christ to die on the cross. You seem to me to have fallen into the very error of the Jews in the time of Paul, who, being ignorant of God's righteousness, went about to establish their own righteousness, not submitting themselves to the righteousness of God. But as I have not time to argue this point with you now, I will give you a tract on the subject of a sinner's justification. Read it carefully, and I think you will be convinced that you have been in a dangerous error hitherto. Not but that we must love and obey God still, but our pardon and justification is entirely of free grace. And at any rate, I think that you need some help to enable you to come to a saving knowledge of what the Bible teaches. Permit me, my friend, again to ask you what your opinion is of regeneration, cottager. Regeneration? I don't exactly know what you mean. Culpeter. Conversion or the new birth. Cottager. Oh, yes, yes. I believe you are something of a Methodist. I would have you to know that I don't hold to any such nonsensical doctrine. I believe that if we do as well as we can, a merciful God will not require impossibilities of us. We are poor, frail creatures, but God is merciful. As to this new birth of which you speak, I know nothing about it and do not wish to know. Two of my neighbors, no better than they should be, went last summer to a great meeting and they both professed, as I have heard, to be converted, as they call it, and it produced a great talk through the neighborhood. And when they came home, to be sure, they put on a very demure, long face and sighed and groaned and exhorted their old companions, and we were all glad to see a reformation, if it would only last. Well, to make a long story short, the boldest of the two held out a month, and then he swore a great oath and said he neither could nor would play the hypocrite any longer, and he is now more profane than ever. The other, a sly kind of man, still wore the mask and was very devout and zealous, but within a week he has been clearly detected in stealing a quantity of yarn from a poor woman and in several other disgraceful acts, 
If such conversion disease are what you are speaking of, I want to know no more about them, for I hate hypocrisy. Colporter. My good sir, you seem to have read your Bible to little purpose. If you have not learned from that holy book that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, and except ye be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Cottager. I don't believe that such things apply to us in this Christian country. In the beginning, when the people were Jews or pagans, they were required to undergo a change, but not so with those who have been born and baptized in a Christian land. Culpeter. Men are now born in sin as much as they ever were, and unless a sinful nature be removed, they never can be admitted into heaven. And if they could be admitted to that holy place, they could have no enjoyment in the presence of a God of infinite holiness in the society of holy angels who stand around the throne of God. Common sense teaches you that you cannot be happy in exercises and employments for which you have neither taste nor relish. Men who do not love to think of God now and take no pleasure in praying to Him and praising Him would be entirely out of their element in heaven. But we know that most men do take no delight in these religious exercises, and it is evident, therefore, that they have no fitness for heaven. There must be an inward change in us before we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. I have here several small books which clearly prove from the word of God the necessity of being born again. Do take one of them and read it with care. And if you do not like it, when I return this way, I will take it back and return your money. Cottager. That indeed is fair. I will take one. For if I do not read, I know my wife will be glad to see it, for she is forever borrowing old books and spends much. But what can you say respecting the two men of whom I spoke to you, who profess to be converted and are now worse than before? Culpeter. I would say that they never experienced the new birth. They probably got alarmed at the great meeting, and some injudicious guides persuaded them that they were converted, or rather, I would say that the devil puts us into their minds, for every instance of counterfeit conversion helps him to maintain his power over the souls of men. You know that men who make counterfeit money are very injurious to society, for they impose upon the people a worthless currency for the genuine, and destroy their confidence in the true currency. Just so spurious religion, like a counterfeit coin, imposes on the people and destroys their confidence in true religion. But because we discover some money to be counterfeit, it would not do to infer that there was no genuine money in the country. No, if there was not some good money, we may be sure there would be no counterfeits. I wonder that you should judge of all professors of religion by those two deceived men. You, you certainly know some men who have for years maintained a consistent Christian character. These ought not to be put in the same class with those whose conduct shows that they had never had any religious principle, but were for a few days and weeks under a violent excitement, and when this wore off they were the same as before, or rather they were worse, for nothing hardens a heart and sears a conscience more than a spurious conversion. You profess to be an honest man, and nobody doubts it, but the two men who were condemned for robbing McGrudder's store were thought to be honest men before their villainy was discovered. Would it be a fair inference, because these men profess honesty, that all others who made their profession or maintained that character were also dishonest? Now, if this conclusion would not be correct in regard to honesty, neither is it in regard to religion. Cottager, if your doctrine be true, 
then a man has nothing to do to obtain salvation. He cannot change his own heart. He is therefore not to be blamed. Culpeter. Man is not excusable for not having a heart and a right spirit. This is the essence of what the holy law of God requires of us all. And just so far as we fall short of it, just so far are we counted sinners in the sight of God. If a man is not to be blamed for a hard, a proud, a selfish, and impenitent heart, what can he be blamed for? This is the very core of his iniquity. This is the evil heart of unbelief of which the scriptures speak. Why cannot a sinner change his own heart only because it is so entirely wicked, so entirely destitute of all love to God and holiness? And can this be any excuse? Why, it is the main thing for which he is now condemned, and for which he will be publicly condemned into judgment, unless God give him forgiveness and repentance unto life. I do therefore beseech you all, my dear friends, to lay aside excuses and seriously engage in seeking God while he may be found, and calling upon him while he is near. Narrator. The culprator was now about to return his books into his pack and proceed on his journey when a collier, who had stood listening to the conversation, came forward and said, Friend, I hope you will not go yet a while. I wish to hear more about these manners. You have touched upon a subject which has been on my mind for months. I have been a very thoughtless, and if I must tell the whole truth, a very wicked man. I never had any education and fell into bad company, and soon was equal to the worst of them in sin and folly. But of late the thought of the sins of my youth troubles me much. I am often so troubled when I lie down at night that I cannot sleep. And often I ask myself the question, what will become of me when I die? A few nights ago while I was tending my coal pit, I looked up and beheld the moon and stars shining very bright, and the thought came into my mind, above all these and beyond the sky there is a brighter world than this. That is the place they call heaven. But how can such a sinful creature as I am ever get to heaven? Well, I thought I must try hereafter to please God and quit sinning. I determined that I would begin to amend my ways and lead a new life. But after a while the thought came into my mind that I was going to judgment. And if I could live without sinning all the rest of my life, how should I be able to answer for the ten thousand sins already committed? These would sink me to hell. I thought there could be no mercy for me. Ever since, all has looked dark before me, and I would have given the world for someone to tell me what I should do. And when I heard you talk to my neighbors, I thought you were the man I wanted to see. And now, my dear friend, do tell me if there is any salvation for such a sinner as I am. Culperder, I feel thankful that Providence has brought me this way if for no other reason that I might give some counsel to one who seems to be groping in darkness and yet anxiously desires to know the way of life. And I do not think, friend, that I can answer your question better than by telling you a bit of my own experience. I was once as wicked as ever you were, and worse, because I ran counter to the instruction of a pious mother who often took me into private place when a child and kneeled down and prayed for me. I followed the sea, and there I had all sorts of bad examples, which I too readily imitated. But when I was leaving home on a long voyage, my mother, when she put up my clothes, slipped a small volume into the bottom of my trunk. When I opened the book, I found that it was on religion, and I shut it up and laid it by, resolving never to read a page in it. But our vessel was wrecked, and by and by I returned to the book, 
and before I had proceeded half through it, I became deeply interested. I found that it described my case exactly and showed it to be very bad and convinced me that I was a wretched sinner against God and was now lying under His wrath and curse. I could think of nothing else. My comrades saw that I was growing serious and tried their best to laugh me out of my religious whims, as they called them. They swore they would take the book and burn it if I did not give over reading it. But their opposition had no effect to remove my concern. I felt myself to be a lost and perishing sinner, and I cared nothing for the ridicule of them or of the whole world. I was like a man sinking in deep water who needed someone to throw him a rope. As I proceeded in reading, I found that the author not only pointed out the mortal disease which had seized upon me, but also described an all-sufficient remedy. He showed me that no righteousness of mine could be of any avail, that God, viewing the wretched condition of the world, had so loved it as to give His well-beloved Son to be our Redeemer, to die in our place, to make an atonement for our sins, and to bring us into everlasting righteousness. The glorious gospel the author opened up what surprised me above measure, he showed that the greatest sinner might on this plan obtain salvation as readily as the least. I'd often heard the word grace, but never before did I know its meaning. I had, until now, supposed that I must bring some price in my hand or undergo some preparation before I could come to Christ. But now I found that I was warranted by the word of God to come at once and receive salvation as a free gift without money and without price. When the light of this truth broke in first on my mind, I was so full of joy that I seemed as one that dreamed. It seemed to be too good and too favorable to be true. I asked myself, do I understand the author? Or may not he be mistaken? I turned again to the book and found that the meaning could not be mistaken, for the same doctrine was taught over and over again, and that the author was correct. I clearly saw from the many plain passages of Scripture which he brought to prove his doctrine. Indeed, the whole scheme of salvation inculcated was precisely what is found in the Bible. Collier, and do you still enjoy the same comfortable assurance which you had at first? Culpeter, no, I cannot say that my joy is as full as it was when I first believed, but I think I understand the gospel plan better. At first I was too much disposed to live upon joyful frames, but now I live more by faith. Collier, and do you think that there is mercy for such a poor, miserable, ignorant sinner as I am? I'm afraid that glorious Savior would drive me from His presence if He should see me coming. Oh, yes, I'm too vile, too ignorant to be saved. Culpeter, do not talk in this strain. Would you make God a liar? Has He said, and will He not make it good? Has He not invited the weary and heavy laden to come to Him? Has he not declared that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, to seek and save the lost? Collier, what you tell me indeed is good news. I had pretty much given up all hope of salvation, but now I begin to see that it is possible, and even this is a relief. But how shall I obtain a part in this salvation? Culpeter, only believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. All things are possible to him that believeth. Christ stands with open arms ready to receive you. Cast your soul confidently on his almighty arm. Trust in him. Collier, I do not clearly know what you would have me to do. I desire to be saved and I am willing to be saved by Christ. 
Is that the thing? Culpeter, suppose you owed 10,000 pounds and had nothing to pay, and some prince should offer to pay the debt for you if you would rely upon him. The favor is so great that at first you might hesitate. You might doubt his ability or his sincerity in making the offer, but this would be very base and ungrateful. Yet this is the way in which Christ is dishonored, even by those who are seeking salvation. Collier, I understand what is required, but I am afraid that I have it not in me to comply. Do tell me how to believe. Culpeter, faith is the gift of God, and unless the Holy Spirit enlightens your mind and renews your heart, you will forever remain in unbelief. To believe in Christ is most reasonable, and is the duty of all who hear the gospel. But such is the blindness and perverseness which sin has brought on the heart, that no man ever cometh to Christ unless a father draw him. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.